Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy, and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change, and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating, and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today I'm really pleased to be joined by Alice Charles, who leads the World Economic Forum's Cities Workstreams, including the Global Future Council on Cities and Urbanisation and its Workstreams on City Climate and Resilience, Urban Inclusion, City Digital Transformation and City Financing. She has 20 years experience working for the private and public sector in the areas of city and urban planning, real estate, urban development and regeneration, construction, infrastructure, environment, climate change and public policy. We're going to be talking about a range of dynamic issues and trends affecting the cities of today and tomorrow, while highlighting some catalytic innovations impacting the people living, working and visiting them. So, Alice, hi and... uh, how are you? Hi, Sean. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. And yes, I'm great. It's a lovely sunny day in Geneva, so there's nothing to complain about. <laughs> very good. <laughs> very nice indeed. Um, and it's, before we get into the, um, the, the the real sort of issue of you know, cities, where they are now, what the current thinking is around them, and naturally all the activity that you've been doing with them, etc., um, from the point of view of uh, issues impacting the people living, working, visiting them, Perhaps just talk us through so your background, how it is that you got to where you are now, and then we'll go through uh, really sees around sort of the, the latest thinking from the World Economic Forum in detail. So by background, I'm an urban planner, um, and I suppose what got me into that in the first place, I grew up in Northern Ireland, and um, I had uh, a brother with a disability, and it really got me interested in the built environment because I seen the difficulties that he had Uh, navigating the built environment. And then when I finished my GCSEs before I started my A-levels, you know, we were sent on sort of a little mini internship um, with our school. And I did mine in the planning authority in Northern Ireland. And that got me even more interested. So, you know, I decided after my A-levels that I would go and study urban planning. And I suppose... um, at that stage, uh, we very much did the same course as architects and civil engineers in the beginning of our studies, and then we specialised later in planning. So it was a good grounding in that, you know, it helped us understand, uh, you know, how you design buildings or structures so they stand up, of course, but also how you design buildings and structures so they're aesthetically pleasing, as well as thinking about how a building fits into the wider urban environment. So yeah, so that's that's where I started. And um, after I left university, I went to work in London and I worked in the private sector for a company that's now called Avison Young, specializing in urban regeneration. Uh, later went on to Jacobs um, and 
Uh, it had another name at that point. It was Colin Buchanan and, and it got purchased and it ultimately became Jacobs. Um, and then went to work in, in government and um, more recently for the World Economic Forum since 2014. Fantastic. Okay. So from the point of view of perhaps sort of you're just setting the scene for a conversation, I mean, this is all happening at, this, say, at a time when serious questions are being asked about those tasked with creating progressive answers to the problems facing citizens, businesses and governments. Uh, I've got a note here. So they're seeking insights for a world in which, according to the UN, 55% of the world's population live in urban areas, a proportion expected to increase to nearly 70% by 2050. Projections show that urbanisation combined with overall population growth could add another 2.5 billion people to urban areas by 2050, with close to 90% of this increase being in Asia and Africa. I mean, some fairly extraordinary um, statistics there and viewpoints. Can you just talk us through? So this year, and indeed last year, perhaps sort of a World Economic Forum, what are the, the, the topics now that are the, the, the really hot issues um, that are being discussed there? So I think, um, I guess there's global issues, but also there's um, issues that are very specific to the built environment. Um, and those global issues also relate to the built environment. So um, first of all, I guess the issue of climate change has very much been on the mind of um, city officials, governments, um, business, civil society and academia that are charged with planning the future of our built environment. And, you know, I guess we've heard a lot about net zero and at COP26, more than a thousand cities around the world committed to getting to net zero by 2050. And as part of that, um, cities have committed to having their emissions by 2030. So there's a huge amount of work to do. And if we think about that in, in a regional context, you know, I'm sitting uh, in the continent of Europe, um, albeit Switzerland is not part of the European Union. Um, and it, the, the European Union has committed to um, having 100 cities that are carbon neutral and smart by 2030. And they want all cities uh, across all of their member states to be carbon neutral and smart by 2050. So there's a huge agenda. Um, my big concern in relation to it is actually um, what is happening right now, the downstream implications of the war in Ukraine, particularly with regard to energy security. So, you know, whilst yes. there's all of these commitments um, the effort has slowed. And, and that's certainly a big concern. So climate is, is very much, um, you know, a, an issue. Also, um, you know, a huge issue is COVID-19. COVID-19 has really reshaped our city. So, you know, we've seen this huge shift to working online. Um, we've seen this shift to, um, you know, sort of e-commerce where we're, where we're making purchases online. Um, so that's, changing the shape of our cities. Um, if, if we think about our central business districts, it's meant that uh, we're spending less time in our offices. There's less uh, economic spend in the center of our cities as a result. There's less uh, focus on, you know, going into retail establishments in the center of cities. So it's um, changed our cities. I'm not saying the office is dead and that I believe we still need the office we still uh, you know because you know the office provides us with colleagues and culture and collaboration um, but i think that we may see footprints of office uh, office uh, you know reducing but similarly the same with retail i very much believe that we will have both an online presence and an offline presence and that's certainly something even where there was a much greater uptake 
of, uh, you know, e-commerce and retail in Asia, for example, before COVID-19. But there was still this demand for an offline as well as online presence. And I think that will remain the same, but um, it's likely to result in reduced footprints. And, And, you know, we've also seen a lot of other businesses really suffer due to COVID, particularly restaurants. You know, we've seen a lot of restaurants closing. Uh, We've seen um, hotels, um, you know, those that, that are not viable, unfortunately, are failing, albeit they tend to be a resilient asset that's capable of conversion to other uses. So, all of that to say COVID-19 ha- is having an impact on um, uh, the built environment. So that COVID-19 is definitely having a profound impact on the shape of cities. And I suppose cities need to think about that vacant space that's resulting, what they're going to do with it. And I guess the other thing that we have is a huge livability and affordability crisis. So yeah. just to say, I'm going to come on to the downstream implications of the Ukrainian war in a second, but just to say we had an affordable housing crisis before COVID-19. And that's certainly been exacerbated by COVID-19 because you know a lot of people have unfortunately lost their jobs, particularly in the service sector. That has been coming back, but... Um, you know, still a lot of people are unable to afford housing. We've seen house prices soar also um, during COVID-19. So, uh, you know, there's there's a, a lack of balance between demand and supply. And, and that's a huge issue. Like the private sector will provide and build housing when it's economically advantageous to do so. Um, but, you know, we go through peaks and troughs in our economy. So when it's not economically advantageous to provide uh, housing, we really need another party to step in and balance supply. And, and you know, that's, um, that is government. Government really needs to um, have an active part in providing housing. And, you know, it's interesting, just last week, I was at the World Urban Forum in Katowice in, in Poland. And, yep. uh, you know, the evening of, of the first uh day of of the the world urban forum um i I find myself lucky enough to uh, join the world bank team for their dinner but before their dinner uh, a polish member of staff took us on a tour of um you know just katowice particularly uh, a particular uh, residential quarter and it was amazing to see that around 100 years ago the principal employer in the town um built an amazing amount of high quality housing for employees. And that was a traditionally, you know, a coal mining uh, city, a very industrial city. Yep. And, you know, I was just saying that if I think about my home city of, of Dublin, Guinness did exactly the same. So if we yep. think back 100 mm-hmm. years ago, employers as well as government were having a very active role in building housing for their employees. But now try and find an employer that's doing that. There's very few doing that. So it's, you know, we've actually went backwards, if you like, in trying to solve um, the, the affordable housing problem. And I think that that's going to be a phenomenal issue um, in the next couple of years. And and then just to, you know, just to talk about the, um, the war in Ukraine and the downstream implications, of course, the energy security crisis is very much to the fore. And we're seeing... Um, the cost of energy, 
people are paying the pumps, people are paying more for their electricity bills, more and more people are finding themselves in energy poverty. And whilst that is slowing the transition, it really shouldn't. It, it should be that our governments are stepping forward and incentivizing the retrofit of housing so and buildings. So we actually need less energy in the first place. Um, and that would provide vital employment um, as well. But equally, we really need to ramp up investment in renewable energy if we're going to overcome that crisis. Because, you know, if we think about where fossil fuels come from, there's huge geopolitical risk associated with that. And, um, you know, there could be another conflict in the not too distant future. We hope there's not, but there could be. And we'd find ourselves in a very similar situation. So I think it's imperative that governments really use the opportunity. But I guess the other thing that we're not really talking about is the food crisis and the cost of construction crisis that results. And if we yeah. think about the energy crisis, we can make changes um, day to day um, to try and reduce the amount of energy that we are using and, and uh, therefore try and make savings. It's more difficult when it comes to food, and particularly where that food was going to countries and cities in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's very difficult for those people to eat less food, you know. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much concerned about the food crisis, but I'm also very concerned about the cost of construction crisis that we're seeing. So, you know, if we think about it, a lot of, of products that we needed, building materials that we needed in construction actually come from Ukraine, come from Belarus, come from Russia, whether yeah. it's timber, for example, or whether, you know, it's it's um, materials, metals and so on. And um, But also the energy crisis has increased the cost of producing materials that we need in construction. So that, given that we already had a huge infrastructure gap, that really concerns me. Like, how are we going to deliver infrastructure? We've seen... Because of COVID-19, um, you know, a lot of projects were put on hold. A lot of projects were delayed uh, in relation to infrastructure. And now we have a cost of construction crisis. So how are they going to deliver this infrastructure? Which brings me on to my final um, issue that I want to flag, and that is capital. Um, so our cities you know, their budgets were extremely impacted by um, COVID-19. We've seen their revenues decrease in relation to parking and tolls and, you know, property taxes and commercial rates. And we've seen in many cases their costs go up in terms of, yeah. you know, health, sanitation, feeding families. So they become more reliant than ever on intergovernmental fiscal transfers. But our yeah. governments are more indebted than ever. So, you know, in terms of thinking about trying to finance the transition, it's certainly a concern. And, and I think it really means that cities and governments are going to have to look to the private sector and blended sources of financing to try and finance vital infrastructures. So, you know, there are some of the things that I see are really challenging our cities at the moment, but there certainly are a lot of other issues as well. Yeah, yeah. Wow, an excellent uh, lead in there, Alison, which indeed, I mean, has to be said. Okay, so um, an immediate question there would be, which cities do you perhaps point to as being best in class? 
I mean, you mentioned the the, the, the recent trip um, with the latest economic forums um, sort of activity. But uh, yeah, are there ones that you point to and say they're clearly showing this is how to do it? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, cities have similar problems. So obviously, if you look at others, you can find solutions. But what has to be said is every city has a unique context. So even if you look yeah, to yeah. those that are best in class, you're going to have to adapt the solution to meet your local circumstances. And of course, best in class is the Helsinki's, you know, the Copenhagen's, the Vienna's of this world. Um, but, you know, also if I look to cities in the global south, I'm really impressed by the city of Freetown at the moment because here we have a leader who is really showing leadership in terms of, you know, reaching out to international organizations, philanthropy, business, civil society and academia to help her try and solve some of her problems, really think imaginatively about how she could attract finance to prepare her vital infrastructure projects, to make them bankable so that somebody will invest in it, to, you know, address the transparency issues. So, you know, I think that whilst it's very easy to pick cities like Helsinki or Copenhagen or Amsterdam or Vienna, um, yeah. there are cities in the global south that are are working really hard to, you know, try and ensure that they have the urban governance systems to attract investment in the future. And I think that has to be called out too. Mm. Okay. And then what about the... Um... Uh, I would say there's the, the sort of tension, but the, the yeah, there's sort of the reality of on one side, one often hears whenever one goes to sort of you know conferences or events about future cities, you know, a couple of things tend to be like the the, the core trends that, that get spoken about. So one is the whole mega city issue, uh, and people go say you know the first mega city is New York, but you know then sort of surpassed by the likes of Tokyo and New Delhi and Shanghai and Mexico City and Sao Paulo, etc., and then followed up by the likes of Cairo, Mumbai, Beijing and Dakar. Um, so, so you hit stats like, you know, so by 2030, there'll be 43 megacities, uh, as in those with over 10 million inhabitants. But at the same time, uh, the UN reckon that sort of one in eight people, uh, oh, sorry, close to half of the world's population, sorry, um, reside in much smaller settlements with fewer than 500,000 inhabitants. So on one side, you know, the big mega city argument, and then on the other, that specific issue of far smaller locations. Um, perhaps just dealing with the, the first of those. So, and I know you may, may mention this um, already in, in a couple of the points you made, but perhaps just talk a bit more about mega cities and where you see that whole, literally, mega issue going. So it's interesting in that I think our megacities actually experienced the greatest degree of outward migration during COVID-19. So, you know, people went to the smaller cities, went to the countryside um, in search of a better quality of life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, And that trend wasn't exactly new because in terms of looking at statistics, uh, the mega cities in some cases were starting to hollow out. They're not growing at, you know, the rate that we had seen in, in recent years. And yeah. in reality, most of the fastest growing cities in the world are ones that we have 
barely heard of, you know. So yeah. uh, many cities, for example, in in India, in China, uh, in Nigeria, and they're cities that we've hardly heard of. So mm. what we're seeing is those cities that, um, you know, that are growing really fast are really second tier cities. And unfortunately, with those cities, what we're seeing is they're not able to provide the infrastructure and services that they need in tandem with development. And yeah. in most cases, as a result, we're seeing huge sprawling cities with large informal settlements. So I think actually it's those second tier cities that require the greatest degree of investment. But also mm. just to say, you know, if you look at Tokyo, for example, mega city, largest, you know, mega city, it has these huge sort of satellite cities that have um, sprung up surrounding Tokyo. So, you know, yeah. but of course that that has been possible because they have incredible public transport facilities. So yeah. um, they've been able to provide this counter Tokyo with the quality of life that people want, particularly, I suppose, a lot of those cities would attract people with families and they just see that, um, you know, they're not able to get the same quality of life. In terms of Delhi, you know, as a huge mega city, looks set to continue growing um, for now, but most of the fastest growing cities in India are actually not Delhi, not Mumbai, you know. So in, in that context, I think the pace of growth is going to be much greater in other cities in India than it will be in Delhi or Mumbai or, you know, Bangalore or Hyderabad. Okay. And then what about the, the other great sort of point that always gets brought out? And that is, and I know you mentioned this or alluded to it just now. So the issue of secondary cities, I think, which is often spoken about in uh in the typical sort of you know richard florida type terms uh from the point of view of creative clustering you know the likes of i know whatever austin texas or portland oregon or indeed brighton england where i am now um where a lot of the as you say as the ft would put it you know the, the catchphrase is the 15 minute city so perhaps just talk a, a bit about that in terms of um what the 15 minute city is all about and uh yeah how how relevant or not that is in the greater scheme of things so the 15 minute city was something that was uh, an idea that was developed by carlos moreno who's a professor in sorbonne university and of course he's also an advisor to the mayor of paris and in her re-election campaign he came up with this idea that they would create a 15 minute city but what i would say is the idea itself is not new. Um, Melbourne has been very focused for a long period of time on something called a 20-minute neighbourhood, which is something that's very similar. And in essence, what um, Melbourne has been seeking to do is that within 20 minutes of where you live, everything that you need to live, work and play will be located. So, you know, you'll be able to walk, you'll be able to cycle, you'll be able to avail of public transport. And I think that's a really important piece that they have a backbone in in public transit they have transit oriented development um, and okay. they've also sought to densify their city um, by providing you know uh, transport to the suburbs and then trying to densify development around those transit hubs um, yep. and also that you have you know in that 20 minute neighborhood you have different 
types of, of housing. Um, so you can age in place. For example, you have different tenures. Um, you you know you have housing for disabled persons. You have housing for uh, for example the elderly. You have different types of mix of of housing. But also you have local employment, local education, local shopping facilities, local health facilities, and local play. Um, you know within twenty minutes of where you live. So. If you think about it, in essence, it's coming back to how a village was constructed. And, you know, yeah, you're yeah. in the UK right now. And if you think about the city of London, uh, London has, of course, a huge central business district, but it has like mini villages that surround it. Right. And each of these mini villages have um, a, a sort of a local hub. So it's, it's that kind of model. But I guess in terms of those that criticize the model, what are the things that they raise? Number one, they say. Isn't it just great if you're living in, you know, Kensington and uh, you have a wonderful 15 minute city? But if you're uh, living in an underserved community elsewhere in London, perhaps it's not so great. So um, yeah. so that is definitely a criticism that's raised. The second thing that's raised is um, that, well, what about the central business district? You know, in, in the, the, the way the 15 minute city is promoted, um, what happens to the central business district. And I think if we look at the example of Melbourne, which is more mature, they certainly did not, you know, um, pursue the 20 minute neighborhood concept without focusing on their city center. They also sought to, you know, bring people back to the city center and make it a viable a place where people could work. Um, so what I would say is if a city is seeking to pursue a 15 minute city concept, then they should also, you know, give attention to their city centre. Um, and also, I think, you know, an, an example that would probably be contrary to the 15-minute city concept is the regeneration of Medellin in Colombia. So, you know, right. if you think yeah. about um, Medellin, it was, it was one of the crime capitals of the world. Uh, it's now a very successfully regenerated place. And I guess what underpinned that success, and it was providing public transport links between underserved neighborhoods and the city center so people could avail of economic opportunities. But yeah. also, the other thing is they did actually provide local services in those neighborhoods. So, you know, they provided libraries and schools and parks and so on. So, what I would say is if a city is pursuing the 15 minute city concept, you still need your connections back to the central business district. You still need to focus on your central business district in terms of, you know, um, adaptive reuse of vacant buildings within the city, getting people back to live in the city. It can certainly yeah. help in addressing your affordable housing crisis, but also focusing on making it a, it a place where people want to, to, you know, live and work. So in that sense, I wouldn't say it's one or the other. I'd say that you need to, focus on your 15-minute city, but also the revitalization of your city centre. What about another issue? And that is perhaps we'd, we'd look towards the home for a second, because I think, certainly from my perspective, it's really interesting how, again, when one is looking at all things trend-related, forecasting-related uh, on a sort of social or sort of cultural basis. So, you know, you know, loads of talk about, as you've been saying, about where cities are going what they're going to be like, what what needs to be put in place on a policy level in order to you know build and develop those cities uh, for the uh, for the well being of of the citizens who live in them, as opposed to again 
issues around secondary cities and all the rest of it, as you've just mentioned, with regards to sort of 20-minute neighbourhoods and 15-minute uh, cities, etc. On the other hand, um, something I think that tends to be um, less, uh, uh, or say, spoken about in less excited terms nowadays, really, is the future home. Because it seems that the, the future home has been spoken about for a long, long time. Um, but I think as um, Accenture put it recently, you know, uh, the smart home should make our lives easier, safer and better. Instead, it's stuck in project mode without mass market adoption. I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but uh, just interested to hear what your perspective is of um, the, uh, the future home that we're all looking forward to wildly over the last couple of decades doesn't seem to have really arrived. Um, or has it? Hmm. So... I think one of the things that we've seen since COVID-19 is actually that people want more space. So, you know, we're spending more time in our home, often working in our home uh, for part of the week, um, going to work for the other part of the week. So certainly we're seeing a greater demand for space. So, you know, before that, we were seeing smaller and smaller and smaller spaces being suggested but actually what we humans are saying is we want more space we want better quality space the other thing that um has very much came to the fore since COVID-19 is this focus on wellness so you know we need space that's conducive for our physical and our mental health so that means designing our, our future homes in such a way that we have access to green space, immediate access to green space. Uh, that could be, you know, in the interior of our building. It could be just, you know, immediately beside our building. But we also need, um, you know, a lot of green space within the, the sort of the general area. Uh, we need parks and so on. So definitely we're demanding more in terms of health. Then from the climate side of things, we also need to deliver net zero carbon homes. So that doesn't just mean addressing operational emissions in terms of energy. It also means addressing embodied carbon. So, you know, if we think about um, embodied carbon, concrete steel produce a lot of embodied carbon and, and carbon, you know, most of the carbon that's produced is, is when we build a building. And if we, refurb that building um, and at the end of life. So in that sense, we are likely to see a much greater focus on using timber, but also timber tends to be a more affordable product. Um, so we're likely to see timber engineered wood uh, being used to a much greater extent in the construction of, of buildings in, in the future. Um, I, I guess what we also are likely to see is much greater efficiencies um, coming through in, in the way we construct our buildings. So, you know, for example, we're seeing a lot of innovations at the moment uh, in, in terms of how construction companies are leveraging digital twin technology to come up with a much more efficient way of designing buildings. Um, but equally, we're seeing a huge focus on prefabrication. So, you know, how we can construct off-site in a much more smart and efficient way and then spend a relatively small or short period of time constructing on-site. So, um, you know, those construction companies that are really focusing on that are very much saying that they're cutting time, that they're cutting cost and they're cutting resources. So um, I think we're likely to see that. But also, 
for example, a lot of the big cement manufacturers are looking at how they produce cement with a lot less emissions. They're looking at alternative methods of construction with cement and steel to reduce the amount of emissions. So they're trying to come up with new ways of using their materials so there's less emissions as well. Um, and, you know, I, I guess in a future scenario where we're using much more timber, we still likely will have a need for some uh, concrete and some steel, but I think it will be much less so than what we have encountered before. So I think we're really going to focus on, you know, getting to net zero in the buildings that we produce. But just to say, that's talking a lot about new construction. And yep. um, in the global north, most of the buildings are already built. So actually what it will be about in the global north is identifying all of those vacant buildings and all of the, those underused buildings that can be repurposed and can be retrofitted. Whereas in the global south, it will be much more about building uh, new buildings. So I think our future home is likely going to focus on um, you know, higher quality, bigger spaces that are more usable, focus on design for health and well-being, focus on design for climate, but we also need to address the affordability challenge. And we yeah. also need to ensure that the homes that we're designing are resilient um, to withstand the worst effects of, of climate change and indeed uh, future shocks that we may not even have, have dreamt about at this stage. Sure, sure. And you mentioned earlier on that, you know, context is naturally such a, you know, the key issue to sort of take on board when one is sort of, you know, just judging um, or taking a view on cities and how they're doing, what they're doing, etc. Um, are there any real outliers out there? Any of the cities that, um, or urban environments that get brought to your attention and you think, wow, they're just doing things completely their own way um, that is really, really uh, you know, sort of a standing out, sort of you know, anomaly cities, should we say, or anomaly uh, sort of urban locations. In a good way or a bad way? Uh, hopefully in a good way. <laughs> hopefully in a good way. Um, so, you know, Melbourne really stands out. Um, and Melbourne stands out because, you know, I think they've, they've had uh, a really good architecture and planning and climate and resilience team for a long period of time that work actively together and um, yeah. i think they have a really good approach to thinking about how they can do more with less you know they are very much thinking about how can we make a gray space a green space um, yeah, you know, yeah. how can we retrofit buildings that we own and uh, turn those buildings into buildings that generate energy um, but they're also you know good for our our physical and mental health um, I, I think they are also always prepared to think of taking on the next big challenge. And, you know, at the moment, they're focusing on a project called Power Melbourne, whereby they're, they have a, an objective to use 100% renewables by 2030. And they're going to rely very heavily on solar energy. And as we all know, the sun doesn't shine all day. A lot more sure. in Melbourne than Brighton, maybe, but you know. uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but still, it doesn't it doesn't shine all day. So they have to store energy. So what they're looking at is how they can use their land and property assets, and how real estate owners can use their land and property assets to store energy. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think that a lot of cities are looking at what they're trying to establish and thinking, we want to do the same in the future. Um, and, you know, they're very closely following how they're seeking to bring forward this project. And I think what has been remarkable is that they've had that focus despite a federal government that wasn't really supportive to addressing climate change. So, you know, that's been a remarkable uh, backdrop. And I suppose then if I think about, um, you know, the other side of the world, Helsinki has been very much focused on, you know, localizing the SDGs and uh, thinking about each and every SDG and how they uh, would create an action plan to uh, address the implementation of each and every SDG in their city. But also they've had their Helsinki energy challenge. You know, their issue was that they were reliant upon coal and they made a decision to close down their um, their coal uh, plants. And I suppose what they were being told was rely on biomass, but they didn't think that was necessarily the most sustainable solution in the long term. So the city came up with a challenge, which they put out to uh, seek solutions from consortias, uh, from business, from academia, from civil society, to come forward with solutions to solve their challenge. And ultimately, the winner not only received an award, but, you know, was, was able to work with the city to seek to implement that project. But I think another thing that city has done very cleverly is think about data and to think yeah. about how they could set up a team within the city to analyze the data that the city has to make sure they're making smarter and more evidence-based decisions, one, but also how they could analyze that data to ensure they're offering better infrastructure and services to the population. So, you know, they've been very much um, at the fore in, in terms of thinking about how they address climate on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, you know, thinking about the role of, of technology in, in enabling future solutions. And then what, what about where some of the more forward-looking planners, uh, strategists, etc., get their view from from the perspective of the past. I just wondered um, how much sort of, uh, should we say, sort of backcasting there is, how much uh, thinking there is about how things were done uh, a long time ago and can we learn from the past as we look to the future? You know, uh, it, it's such a good point. And last week um, at the World Urban Forum in Katowice, uh, there was a a discussion convened by the World Health Organization uh, with a number of us um, from a variety of organizations and cities and, you know, business and civil society to discuss an urban health program that they are seeking to develop. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to point out and did point out is my profession exists because there was a public health emergency. My profession exists because there was a recognition that you needed to bring public health officials together with architects, you know, engineers to think about how we could design um, our, our cities, our, our towns, our villages for good health. So yeah. um, unfortunately, I think that's something that many of my fellow professionals either don't know or don't really think about. Um, and, and I think that's something that we should spend more time thinking about. And also, if I think, you know, a lot of the urban planning movements actually come out of, of the UK. If I think about the garden city movements, um, yeah. that was very much in terms of thinking about how we could be self-sufficient. If we think about green belts, it was how do we protect nature? 
Um, and now a lot of that thinking is starting to come back in terms of recognizing we have a biodiversity crisis, we have a food crisis. So how can we produce food? How can we near shore food? How, how can we produce food nearer to where it's needed? But also, how can we stop this encroachment in, of the built environment into um, biodiversity? And unfortunately, this encroachment, as we've seen from COVID-19, can ultimately result in a huge health crisis as, as well as it presents um, a biodiversity and climate crisis. So I think that um, we definitely need to revisit our planning history to remember how we plan for health, how we planned for the localization of food, how we plan for the protection of biodiversity. Um, and certainly, I think, given the cost of construction crisis that we're facing into, we also need to plan for doing more with less. Uh, and the circular economy of construction is going to be incredibly important in that regard. Yeah, yeah. And then... From the point of view of this year's forum, um, which already seems quite a long time ago, um, could, could I just ask about the, the the general mood? Because one has to say, I mean, there are naturally, as you've been so eloquently putting across, have to say, you know, uh, there are you know absolutely you know massive challenges out there and, and a vast number of them. So I just wondered, I mean, is the mood one of sort of optimism, pessimism, somewhere in the middle, or, or, or what? I would say that the mood was that of concern. So, you know, obviously the geopolitical crisis that we see right now in um, Ukraine was very much to the top of mind. But just to say it's not the only conflict in the world right now. So yeah, yeah. we unfortunately have many conflicts in many parts of the world. And, um, you know, that often results in a migration crisis and most people migrate to cities. So um, it, there was definitely concern in terms of uh, the geopolitical crisis, uh, the downstream implications of, of the war in Ukraine. And it's probably got a lot more attention because of the very significant downstream implications of the war in Ukraine. Um, that was of concern. Uh, I think the R word uh, in, in terms of recession was very yeah. much... Talked about, and it was deemed uh, to a certain extent inevitable that we would have a recession, unfortunately, in Europe, um, likely later this year, early next year. Yeah. Um, there, there were concerns already about the slowdown in China. So we had seen a lot of issues in the real estate sector in, in China for about the past year. Um, you, you've seen far too much lending basically to the property sector, and um, We've seen how that contributed to the great financial crisis. And unfortunately, a very similar thing was happening in China. Um, so th there's definitely concern there. There was also concerns uh, around supply chain issues. Um, that started with COVID-19. The second wave of COVID in China that resulted in major shutdowns had further implications. The war in Ukraine had further implications. So there's concern around supply chains, geopolitics, Recession was a word that was being used to a much greater extent. Um, yeah. Belief that uh, the interest rates would have to go up, and we've since seen that. Um, and unfortunately, it's a bit of a vicious cycle with increases in interest rates. The spending power of people is reduced. Um, so it's a bit of a vicious cycle. Uh, I did see some discussions around 
the alternatives to GDP as well. Um, more from the built environment sector, I guess, in terms of the infrastructure discussions, um, there was a recognition that there was these huge stimulus packages and how do we get the stimulus package down to the level of the city? How do we ensure that the stimulus packages continue? Um, because, you know, generally when we have a recession, everything grinds to a halt in relation to infrastructure build, and it's actually the opportune time to build infrastructure. Um, so there was discussions around that and, you know, a lot of discussions around how the uh, enabling environment needs to be fixed to ensure that investors will invest in terms of addressing issues of corruption, dispute resolutions, etc. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of the, the sentiment around infrastructure. Around biodiversity, um, there was a big focus on nature-based solutions. Uh, you know, in terms of infrastructure investment, it, it's less than 1% of infrastructure investment at the moment. And nature-based solutions were seen as providing much wider co-benefits, but also they, you know, they are good for, for biodiversity um, and they're much more sustainable solutions generally. So there was a big focus on, on nature-based solutions, protecting and enhancing biodiversity within our cities. Um, also, there was a focus on, you know, net zero cities. Um, and so how can we decarbonize our energy, our mobility, our buildings, um, and also create more compact cities because you can't be a net zero city if you are a sprawling city. Um, more widely, there was also a lot of discussion about the post-pandemic city, the crisis that that has left, what yeah. needs to be addressed. Um, and we also had various discussions that related to, uh, you know, obviously the situation, for example, in Kiev with uh, the mayor, Mayor Klitschko was able to, advise us of the impact of the war on his city. And we also had um, a CEO's discussion that was focused on reconstruction of, of cities and infrastructure in Ukraine. And it may sound, how can you have that conversation when a war is ongoing? And it may sound a little bit crazy, but actually it's not. Um, because you need to understand the level of damage that has been done to cities and infrastructure in Ukraine, and you need to try and put a, a price on that. And yeah, yeah. the next step then is for, you know, uh, governments to to pledge money to um, reconstruct cities and infrastructure in Ukraine. And, and, you know, more detailed reconstruction plans have to be developed after that. But at the same time, temporary infrastructure needs to be put in place for all of those displaced persons who are likely to remain in the west of the country for quite some time. Um, and they don't have the infrastructure to meet the population. So uh, we we certainly had that very much on the agenda uh, as well. And there was wider discussions in terms of real estate, which was very much focused on, you know, green buildings and, and real estate owners are really thinking about, and investors, by the way, are really thinking about um, investing in line with ESG, but also understanding that their assets could become stranded assets or are stranded assets. So they need to act now to yeah. retrofit their assets. Um, so that again was on the agenda, as well as uh, a discussion which was uh, bringing together real estate, engineering and construction, um, you know, building materials companies, um, government, uh, city and national government, civil society and academia to think about this whole issue of embodied carbon and how we need to 
redesign our building materials um, to ensure that we're addressing embodied carbon in our buildings and rethink construction. So, um, so we had a wide ranging discussion in Davos. Um, and I think it very much was dealing with many of the issues that we see uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to begin to, just after all that, just begin to sort of finish off because I'm aware that you're a highly busy person. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you, Alice. I mean, just a couple of points I mentioned there that, that, that link to the ones that you're making. Um, I mean, I think some of the thinking um, – Regards, you know, the, the really big thinking that needs to be put into place here, I think, has been illustrated perhaps by those like the wonderful Mariana Mazzacuto on the economic side. Interesting to me that you're talking about Melbourne. I remember oh, oh, you know, several years ago being down in Melbourne. I went down with Richard Florida, you know, the uh, who obviously wrote Rise of the Creative Class and then Flight of the Creative Class and then later the New Urban Crisis, um, um, who uh, uh, really sort of spent a lot of time talking about his viewpoints on almost like the, the equation he had for you know how to build a successful urban environment, and it, it was uh, all about sort of you know, think tech, talent, and tolerance were his uh, the three T's that he was obsessed with. Um, do, do, who would you sort of point to, perhaps, or uh, um, encourage the listeners to uh, look towards in terms of the? Uh, the really big thinkers of now um, that uh, perhaps have a sort of place in the limelight? So certainly Richard, um, I think he's a great thinker, particularly around the economics of cities. Um, Also Carlo Ratti from MIT. Um, He's a really great thinker when it comes to uh, using enabling technology in our cities. Um, Carlos Moreno, um, you know, he, he has developed the 15 minute city idea. And I think it would be really useful to keep in touch with him as mm. he is trying to implement it in the city of Paris. Um, yeah. So definitely Carlos. Um, and actually somebody in the city of Melbourne that's always worth watching is Professor Rob Adams, um, who's been yeah. the city architect and he's been there for about 30 years leading a lot of the projects uh, in the city of Melbourne. So I love to to keep track on, on what he's doing. Um, and... Uh, then there are some great architects um, that I like to follow. One is Jan Gell. And, of course, he's very much focused on creating the livable city, livable spaces. Uh, a fellow Danish architect, um, Berke Engels. I, I think he's designing amazing buildings at the moment. Um, and there's a great real estate developer that I keep a close eye on and uh, his name is Kuhn van Oostrum, and he has a company called Edge, and he's based in Amsterdam. And he is designing the most amazing buildings that are net zero carbon, that are well, that are circular. Um, and I, I certainly think he's a huge disruptor in the space. And he's it's worth keeping an eye on, on the buildings that he's developing and retrofitting, um, because I think there's certainly ones for other designers of buildings to take a very, very, very close look at. So there's certainly some of the people that I like to follow the work. I, I do follow the work of the World Bank, the OECD, and the multilateral de- development banks uh, very, very closely as well, like the EBRD, the EIB. Um, and it's interesting, I follow less my profession, um, you know, the, the sort of the Royal Town Planning Institutes or the, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the Urban Land Institute. I'm a big fan of the Academy of Urbanism. Um, yeah. and I think they organize some really great talks and lectures that try to bring together 
planners, architects, urban designers, engineers. So I'm a big fan of those types of events that bring together you know, the multi-discipline uh, professions that need to be working together. And I'm also a really big fan of the World Green Building Council. And I think they have amazing chapters in countries around the world. So, you know, they're a great global team, but they also have um, great chapters at the country level. So I like to keep an eye on, on what they're doing as well. Fantastic. Thank you. I thought it's fascinating point you're making there about uh, Carlos Moreno in Paris. Um, I mean, certainly I think one of the uh, uh, just one of the places one that always talks about with, with regards to fascinating buildings in Paris is uh, Station F, um, uh, the uh, sort of whatever world's largest startup facility in an old, I think, an old uh, rail freight depot that they yeah. um, sort of uh, redid. And it's just what a fantastic place and what, and what a wonderful bit of work that was. Um well, look, in, in that case, literally sort of final couple of questions, Alice, just so everyone is aware of where they can actually track you down so they can follow your uh, words of wisdom online, etc. Where are you? <laughs> uh, so I'm on LinkedIn as Alice Charles. I'm on Twitter as Alice Charles. Um, so feel free to follow me if, if you want to know more. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm always interested to hear what fellow professionals in the built environment space have to say as well. Yeah. And then uh, anything coming up in the short or medium term for you that you can sort of finally talk about? Any? Uh, um, I actually any do have some, you know, large reports coming out in the next couple of months. Um, they will be released from sort of uh, late July through to mid-August. Uh, one is going to be on addressing climate and resilience in cities. One is going to be on urban inclusion and um, thinking about all the groups who are vulnerable to being excluded in cities and yeah. you know how you drive spatial, economic, social and institutional inclusion. Uh, yeah, yeah. One is going to be very much focused on the enabling role of tech. So it's actually going to deep dive into this whole area of data um, yeah. and the strategic role of data as well in terms of revolutionizing infrastructure and services in cities. And the fourth is going to be on city financing. And it's really going to look at, you know, the barriers to attracting finance and cities, the, the, the scale of the problem. But it's going to set out what good looks like. So the housekeeping that cities need to do to address the financing problem, you know, um, the sources of, of finance um, that are out there, how they go after that finance, how they need to adjust governance, their leadership um, you know, their capacity within their city. So I think given where we are right now, of all those reports, I think the two that's probably going to be quite new and different and would be of huge benefit is the report around urban inclusion and the report around financing. Okay, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Well, in that case, um, as our time has come to an end, I mean, it really just, just leads me to... Um, Say so to Alice Charles, who leads the World Economic Forum Cities Workstreams and has 20 years experience working for the private and public sector. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Sean. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the New Abnormal podcast. Just so you know, the trends and insights discussed in these podcasts link to my speeches. Check out seanpedersee.com for more info and to ongoing cultural and social research conducted by brandpositive.org. Till next time, goodbye.